Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been a concerted effort to further dismantle the taboos surrounding mental health and to make access to well-being apps, classes and courses easier and more affordable for all. To find out more about the movement to improve our collective mental health, I spoke to Ariana Alexander-Seffrey and Chris Hope. So I'm Ariana. I joined the Social Innovation Cohort in 2020. So I was the pandemic intake. And yeah, I'm the founder of an app called Spoke, which is currently the UK's number one music-led mental wellness app. We deliver mental well-being tools through some of the world's best musicians, producers, lyricists. And our whole goal is to make mental wellness more accessible and culturally relevant to people who do not typically respond to the yogi clinical world of wellness. I'm Chris, uh, I'm cohort 2021. So I missed the, uh, the pandemic or just about. And I'm the founder of the 100 Coffee Movement. So this came about from a project where I met 100 strangers for coffee in 100 weeks. At the end of that, I founded a non-for-profit. We were delivering workshops in schools. Since then, I've sort of moved away from that in a way, in the sense of I've been more writing and doing other work in the social connection space. So I have just released uh, our, our social media for a children's book and currently studying um, loneliness in vulnerable groups as part of my dissertation at Cambridge. What brings us here really is about the fact that there are two overarching themes. One is social innovation, which we will get to in, in greater detail. And the second one is mental health. You clearly are coming at mental health, both of you, from very different perspectives. Ariana, may I ask you first, how does a music app help with the cultural, I suppose, acceptance of mental health and help people to engage with practices that will make them feel better? So musicians and artists, in fact, I should say artists, so it's not just musicians, have always been the leaders of culture or the gatekeepers of culture. So a couple of groups that we really look at are young men who don't typically go towards therapy, meditation, mindfulness, counselling, that kind of stuff, and underrepresented groups. So people who are from disenfranchised um, social backgrounds, who would just never have even um, been able to start practices that can and are proven to help prevent you reaching crisis. So early stage preventative wellness tools, they're typically reserved for very people from very middle class backgrounds, which is just not it's just not fair and it's not right. So music, by default, musicians have always been the vehicle or the vessel to some of the world's hardest to reach populations. That's, that's the case always. However, we currently live in a world where music and actually all of the creative arts as an industry, there's no verified, aggregated platform for creatives and artists to become ambassadors of good mental health in a scientifically backed, validated way. So, I mean, right now in the market, most artists, most musicians, they want to help people with mental health. So they, you know, they maybe put a meditation track on their album 
Firstly, not a single label, music label in the world, trains artists to speak about mental health in a way that's going to be most effective. They don't get mental health practitioners in. They don't do proper training. So because that's just the way the industry is. So artists, what are their options? They go on, they maybe do a Spotify podcast. They maybe, you know, do some something on their Instagram live. All of that stuff is very well intentioned and it can be great, but it's not validated. It's not aggregated. We don't have the involvement of mental mental health practitioners who can say in order to help people with anxiety you should use these kind of tools or speak about it you know in this framework and so what we've realized is there's this massive gap for a I guess a platform or a vehicle to help bridge this very much needed gap so yeah sorry to answer your question music has always been a tool for mental health and what we're starting to see from our now nearly five years of research is we really believe the future of looking after our mental wellness will be driven by creatives and artists. We don't think it's going to be driven by yoga teachers, ex-Buddhist monks, you know, people, you know, therapists, which are really important people. But in order to be in youth culture and relevant mainstream culture, you have to be working with artists. Chris, you've mentioned the 100 coffees in 100 weeks project that you started what led you to that in terms of finding a way to explore the impact of mental health yeah I mean I think um for me I came from a really I I was quite disconnected in 2016 I would describe it now in hindsight as I I was feeling quite lonely and it was there was a number of things factors that were happening in my life at the time that I and, and again you know looking back I was doing things that probably didn't align with my values I was in a you know a difficult relationship and my work wasn't really aligning with my values. So it was sort of a, a time where I felt quite disconnected from myself and others, and I'm very extroverted. So I was lucky to be living with my best friend at the time, and we talked about setting some goals for the next year, the first time I'd ever set goals. And one of those goals that I set was to meet 100 new people, and little did I know that that would be the goal that was the most impactful by far. And for me, it was all about just reconnecting with myself. It was never meant to be anything. It was totally I would just do one coffee a week. I was in Melbourne. I thought, what's a great way to meet people? It's very safe. We love coffee in this city and uh, it's quite a safe way to meet people. So I was able to reach out to people using LinkedIn at first. And yeah, I think the the mental health benefits of the project really came through at the end. I think once I reflected on the, the process and and I think the most powerful thing about the 100 coffees is not the, necessarily the, the coffee itself, but it was the process of reflection afterwards. So I would take some time every Sunday to write down what was I grateful for, what did I learn from that person and how could I apply that to my life? And I think that when you do that for 100 weeks, that's very powerful um, in any context. So for me, it was, um, yeah, it was really about reconnecting with others and then learning from their stories. And I realized that everybody has a really interesting story and there's a lot of wellness benefits from meeting new people without having any angle. I mean, often this project is talked about in a networking context and um, I've been asked a few times to speak about networking and I think it's a word that I'm not, I'm not, you know, super into. I think it's kind of has a connotation that you're trying to get something out of somebody. For me, the 100 Coffee Project was all about just reconnecting with myself and, and reconnecting with others. And there were some serious wellness benefits to that for me. So quite interesting that I finished it just before COVID. I think it would have been a very different project had, had we been sitting in lockdown in Melbourne, but um Yes, it was, uh, yeah, it was a really impactful and life-changing project for me. And, I mean, you talked about sort of dis- rediscovering yourself in, in many respects, but you've also used the phrase life-changing a couple of times. What was so life-changing about it? I think it gave me a lot of direction. I mean, I, I came into it with a very 
I guess, narrow perspective on the world in some ways. I worked in the sports industry and all industries can be somewhat insular. And I think that I was sort of in that trap as well. And I think meeting people from very different backgrounds made me feel really inspired. And it was something that I, I wanted to explore different opportunities. And, and as a result, I did that. One of which was coming to Cambridge in 2018 when I was on a trip to the UK where I met Neil Stott, actually, who's obviously the program director of the MST Social Innovation. So amongst others, not just Neil, but Neil was someone who, you know, was really impactful for me at that time. And I think that, you know, continuing, I spent some time in the Philippines as well. I did an internship during my master's. And so this project in many ways gave me a lot of, um, a lot of direction, but it also opened a lot of doors for me in the sense of it opened my mind up to some possibilities as well. Towards the end of the project, a lot of people became interested in the stories. They became more interested in what did you learn from the other 91 coffees, for example, um, if it was Coffee 92. And so I, I felt that I should conceptualize the idea. And my mom actually pushed me a lot to conceptualize the idea and said that this is a great thing that you've done and you should really conceptualize that. So that's where the non-for-profit came from. Me and some friends decided to found a non-for-profit. We thought about this. There's a huge problem with loneliness. There was a huge problem with loneliness before COVID and um, we started to deliver workshops in schools and some university work as well. And so that, so from that perspective, it was also very life-changing. So it's led me to a lot of different things. I mean, it's now led me to be studying at Cambridge, right? So I didn't think that um, I would, would ever be doing that five years ago. So I think this project has changed me in many different ways. What are the challenges then, Ariana, for example, that you're facing in trying to get a clear message and a clear path to good mental health? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we've learned um, over the past couple of years is using the term mental health can sometimes, um, it sometimes isn't overly helpful. There is a lot of labelling at the moment. Um, so, you know, anxiety is huge and everyone suffers from anxiety at some point. And you know, there are situations that are inherently anxiety inducing, such as going through life changes and, you know, breaking up with a partner or, you know, trying to figure out what to do with your career next. All of these things are anxiety inducing. It does not necessarily mean that you have anxiety or it is, you know, a, a crippling mental health illness that you're suffering with. So I think at the moment there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of self-diagnosis on TikTok and socials and, and I don't think all of it is overly helpful because I, I think the thing that is most helpful is just learning a sense of emotional resilience and knowing that no emotion is negative. You know, you are going to feel sad sometimes, you're going to feel angry, you are going to feel anxious, you're also going to feel really elated and happy some days, and you are going to spend the rest of your life feeling various emotions at various points depending on various circumstances. So that's something that we try to explain as much as possible through our, you know, our guidance and lyricism and through all of our tracks. And, you know, even when my team are giving talks. So that's one thing that we really, we feel quite strongly about sharing. I probably have some more things, but I'll, I'll pass to Chris. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, totally agree. I think there's a lot of, I mean, we could use the word oversaturization of information, right? I think it's not just in the mental health space um, or whatever space you want to refer to this as. I think it's everything. So, I mean, social media has sort of changed that as well. And there's lots of people on social media talking about, these topics and acting as influencers and so on. And some of that's really important, but some of it's also um, unhelpful as well. So I totally agree with that. I think also, I mean, 
there's a lot of um, pressure on, on us at the moment, particularly in a capitalist society in which we do live in, and, and that's to do more, right? And it's that, that we're too busy and that we're always looking to do more, always looking to work more, always looking to push ourselves more. And as a result, I think something that I've really noticed as well is that we really value convenience over connection now um, as a society, in particular, you know, little things like using the self-service at the, at the supermarket, for example, or skipping the coffee line using an app. You know, these are all eroding face-to-face -face connections. And I think that that's something that's um, also very problematic for us. And I think that that's another thing that's happening in, the, in this space is that we know what the tools are, but it's how do we access those tools in order to have positive well-being and positive mental health. And I think that um, this is where, you know, things like Spoke, they're so powerful, right? Because it is very different and it's something that connects to young people. And you mentioned young men around and before, and the biggest killer of, of young men is suicide. Right? So that's something between, you know, 18 and, and 45. So that's something that we need to address and we need to look at mental health or, or, or wellness in a more holistic way also and consider, consider some of these cultural and societal factors around the way that we live, the way that we work as well. And the, and the fact that we are continually pushing ourselves and, and we're constantly busy and valuing convenience over connection. I think that these are things that we need to think about much more in, from, from this perspective as well. Yeah. And maybe just on your point there, I think there's a real tension between really the fast pace of the evolution of our technology and our conveniences and what we know is you know like you say face-to-face -face connection is eroding and we know that going and sitting with a friend for a coffee once a week really helps you know sharing and being able to create that connection really helps but at the same time we've got society is changing so rapidly so there's there's this real tension there with how do we how do we incorporate both without completely ignoring the fact that we're living in this shape-shifting world and we kind of need to adapt to it, otherwise we're just going to be left behind, and being as good to ourselves as possible? And I don't know the answer to it, but all I know is that there's a tension there and we need to somehow navigate it. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I agree. I think it's um, it's a very challenging Thing that we all have to work through right and i think the first thing is is self-awareness that friendship and these social connections are very important to us and even though we do live in this hyper busy time we still need to prioritize friendship and we still need to prioritize these relationships because without those we we you know we go down this other spiral of going too far professor neil stott who is the program director for the masters in social innovation and the co-director for the cambridge center for social innovation is often heard to be saying, is this a moment or is it a movement? Social innovation itself, as we all know, is a movement. But what you're doing in terms of researching loneliness, in terms of promoting well-being through music apps, how do you make what you are doing a movement rather than a moment? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And this is something we work. So within what we're doing with Spoke, we are becoming a movement in our own right. We're attracting a very different crowd of people. These are not the kind of people that you see at your yoga classes and your typical mental wellness classes. It's 50% male, 50% female. It's, you know, whereas most mental wellness sort of, you know, um, events or apps is well over 90% female. So, uh, you know, we, we're already creating this movement around 
having interest in this field of mental wellness, but it being delivered differently through music, artistry, creativity, you know, culturally relevant voices, etc. So that's something that is happening. And what I think I took from the course and where it's sort of related is we created this thesis where there's almost three layers of impact. And, and I think for a movement to happen, there needs to be, yeah, like a thesis as to not just what's happening right now and we need to change it, but if we do it like this, this is the change we're gonna see. And then if you keep going, this is the kind of change you can see in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. You, you kind of need to see way beyond the next year or two. And for us, it's that, you know, music is important. Yes. And lyrics are important. The layer around it, you know, storytelling, sharing wisdom is important. But actually, the wider concept is the ideas of identity and people feeling connected on a cultural and identity level to the messages that they're hearing and then that is going to shape communities and shape the way we think and there's there's various theories we learned that you know come into that so I think in terms of it being a movement it's about sharing that narrative in a way that people really understand this is how the future is going to change based on what we're doing now and the steps that we can implement, which I guess is in a complete alignment with what social innovation does. For myself, I think, I think COVID's helped a lot in the sense of COVID's normalized a lot of discussion about loneliness. I think previously it was more of a taboo topic. I think it still is a taboo topic in some, some ways, but I think COVID has helped people to talk about loneliness and social connection. I think now if you were to ask people in a cafe, did they experience loneliness during COVID? I think most people would say yes. You know, at some point, they knew someone who experienced loneliness. So I think that's helped a lot with, with my work as well. So I don't think loneliness is going away. But I think it's always a balance with, with our work in social change. It's kind of thinking about what do you want your impact to be? Do you want it to be kind of a practical hands-on impact? Do you want it to be through research? Is it through your own organization that you, that you found? Or is it through a different organization as well that you might work with? So I think these are questions that, you know, we also get in, in the course. And I think that it's worth for anybody thinking about with social changes, where do they want their impact to be? And you also can't do everything, right? I think that you can't be everywhere. You also have to prioritize where is, you know, where, where are you going to get the most impact? So for me, it's really about just continuing to do work that aligns with my values and, and definitely being really clear about that. And I think that having a balance of both the research sense, the writing as well, hence the children's book, that's what we're focusing on there. Uh, with some also some practical outcomes, but then also the research side of the thesis. So, yeah, just thinking about how you know what are the multiple ways that you can that you can impact a problem, and I think that there are multiple layers that you can impact a problem through. I mean, advocacy work and policy work is another is another side of social change, right? That that um, often is forgotten about, but a very important part of of how we create change as well. So, I think for me, COVID uh, definitely assisted with with the loneliness stuff, but um, yeah, and it's definitely not going away as a, as a problem either. What's interesting is that both of you talk about social change and what you are doing at this moment to create social change and impact 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line. In terms of systemic change, how do you feel the work that you're doing now with Spoke, with uh, your loneliness project and the research and, and the children's book that you're writing, Chris, how do you feel that can impact systemic change? Yeah, so I guess for us, it's about helping to educate more people on the importance of doing something differently. So right now, there are 
when I say thousands, tens of thousands of mental wellness. And we, we you know, I, I think also sometimes we maybe dismiss the importance of mental wellness tools. We're like, oh, it's just mental wellness, you know. But actually, no, these are really cheap, sometimes mm -hmm. Three accessible ways to practice early stage preventative tools that can help prevent you reaching crisis. So, you know, whereas usually you would have had to go and pay a load of money to therapy, you can now access them on an app or you can access them online. So this is, you know, the, it's not the tool's fault at all. Like th these are just important ways of thinking and reflecting and metabolizing emotions and becoming more aware of your senses and of, you know, how you feel about emotional, so emotional literacy, a lack of emotional literacy is a factor in male suicides. Men tend to have lower emotional literacy. And it's been found that just even understanding how you feel is 50% of the problem sometimes. You know, a big cause of overwhelm is just having no idea why you're feeling the way you're feeling, what it is you're even feeling. And, you know, these are things that we, we need to learn about. We need to educate people. So for us, it's really about bringing this to new audiences and in new ways. Um, so almost like a new kind of like in new languages, really. All of these thousands of mental wellness tools, they look, sound and feel the same. They're very yogi. They're very clinical. They and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them at all, you know, because they serve well a lot of people in a couple of demographics, but they just do not serve millions and millions of young people especially young men especially young people from you know lower socioeconomic backgrounds more diverse backgrounds etc so for us solving this systemic problem is through sharing really important knowledge but through new mediums that are going to be culturally relevant and more accessible and then by doing that you know our audience are people in all different sectors they are people who work in you know they some of them work in government some of them you know work in gra grassroots organizations there's teachers there's people who are still students and it's like just because this is a new concept for them you know they're taking that to all areas of their life as well and the other thing I'll mention is collaboration is so, so key. So working with aligned organizations, partners, you know, we're in music. Yeah. So if you don't like music, which not many people do, but if you don't like music, then Spoke might not be for you. And that's fine. But there, there are, I know people that are doing similar kind of with a similar mission and they're doing it through sport. Or they're doing it through, you know, education technology. They're doing something very, very different. So collaboration is really key. And I guess one thing we understand is you're not going to solve a systemic problem overnight because it's cultural, it's political. A lot of it are messages that have been ingrained into our social norms for hundreds, if not thousands of years. You know, the idea around masculinity and the social roles that we play, the gender roles that we play comes into it hugely and is a huge, if not the number one reason behind male mental health and male suicide. So there's so much of that that I've been researching and learning about and Spoke's not going to overcome that. Like that's, you know, we're going to we're going to help move things along in the way that we can. But that's something that needs to be unpicked piece by piece over time. And the more people you educate, the better. And the last story, I know I've been speaking a lot, but the one thing I'll leave on is for me, because I'm running this startup and I'm trying to bring this message to more people, and, and I guess it's a curse. I don't actually wish this on my worst enemy. I And because I feel so strongly about it and I feel 
angry that change isn't happening quickly enough, I feel very determined to get this message to as many people as possible and bring more people in and help share it. So I try and speak about this whenever and however I can. So I'm constantly giving talks and doing podcasts. And if I'm at a big event and someone's like, does anyone have anything to say? I'll I'll be, I'm exhausted and burnt out, but I'll stand up and I'll, I'll say something and I'll be like, look, if any of you align with what we're doing, come and speak to me. So I think that's another part of it. You know, you need to have key stakeholders who are, even if it's just for a project length, willing to put their neck on the line and speak about things. Because like Chris said, there's only so much you can do sitting behind a computer until you're in front of someone, speaking to them, telling them a story, bringing them into the narrative, get evoking that emotion, but then people start to open up and then things will start to change and things will flow. And I think that's probably one of the best ways to try and solve this problem. I think that a lot of Ariana's points are really around kind of looking at looking at these things holistically. So I think loneliness is another one we can look at holistically as well. I think I talked before about the way we work, the way that we live our lives, uh, particularly in Western countries or capitalist societies. I think that that will take a lot of unpicking and that's not something that a couple of papers and some uh, workshops and a children's book are ever going to change. So I think that, again, it, it's more about, yeah, thinking about where do you want to have your impact? And I think for us, the, the children's book is is really important because it's focusing on young people, right? Which is, I think that's something that, um, and, and obviously they are the future of change as well. So that's hence the motivation behind that. But really, I think my thesis is has been very interesting. Some of the findings looking at um, the impact of kind of culture and stigma on loneliness. And a lot of, when we talk about loneliness, we talk about it from an individual perspective and and kind of, individual interventions are kind of best practice and so on a lot of the research kind of talks about this but I think we need to look at loneliness more holistically and think about some of the cultural implications that migrants face for example when they do come to live in a live in a different country and and so on and I think that again it it really is around collaboration and and whether that's from government social enterprise individuals community organizations etc I think that collaboration to to solve any of these systemic problems is, is very very important. Yeah, maybe the last thing to add, and I think you touched on it, Chris, is that at the end of the day, there needs to be hardcore policies put in place. So, yeah, I think some things will take regulation and policy. You know, I think about like housing and the housing crisis. And until we start putting really good policy in place, nothing's really going to change because people will act the way they act and it will still be in the same social situation. And policy that, that gets the right people in the room to set the policy, that's the other thing. I think that's also very important. We And something that we, we see a lot is, and, and have talked about in the social innovation course, is this idea of who, who's in the room, who are the people that we're, we're speaking to. And I think that it's very important that we look at these problems from many different lenses. You know, here in Australia, we have the longest living indigenous population. And I think that there's a lot of work that we can do in our own country around you know, looking at Indigenous perspectives and, and, and getting their perspective and getting their voice in the room on many things. That was Ariana Alexander-Seffrey, founder and co-CEO at Spoke and graduate of the Masters in Social Innovation. Also speaking was Chris Hope, who is currently a student of the programme and founder of the 100 Coffee Movement. You can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation and how to apply for the Masters in Social Innovation by following us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter and YouTube.